The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. Today, we talk with Mark Charles, co-author with Sung Cha Ra of the book Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Mark is a Diné leader and a former board of trustee member of the Christian Reformed Church. For two years, he led an indigenous and settler church in Denver before moving to live in the Navajo Reservation with his family for 11 years. While on the reservation, Mark became exposed to, began studying, and eventually started teaching about the doctrine of discovery. But Creator also placed on his heart a desire for truth and conciliation. Six years ago, Mark and his family moved from the Navajo Nation to Washington, D.C., and in 2020, he ran as an independent candidate for president of the United States. Welcome to our podcast, Mark. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sherry. It's so good to be with both of you. If I could, please let me introduce myself. Sure, please. So, Yate, Mark Charles, Yenishia, Sinbake, Dana, Nishla, Dotohiglini, Bashishin. In the Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people, and our identities come from our mother's mother. My mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say Loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbake Dine'a. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. As you said, I also just want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you not from my Navajo Nation, our traditional lands, but I moved from the Navajo Nation to Washington, D.C., and these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. And so I want to honor the Piscataway as the indigenous hosts of these lands, I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands, and I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today. Mm. Thank you, Mark. Um, so thank you also for your book, Unsettling Truths. I really highly recommend it to our listeners, and I really, um, I just thought it was a, a really great book for anybody who is wants to learn more about the doctrine of discovery that they need to read it. Um, so I wrote my master's thesis in seminary many, many years ago on the religious imagination. And I really loved how your book uses this framing about the power of our social and theological imaginations to shape the world. And you quote theologian William Cavanaugh, who says that the imagination of a society is the sense of what is real and what is not. It includes a memory of how the society got where it is, a sense of who it is, and hopes and projects for the future. Therefore, as you say, 
The social imagination possesses the power to shape and influence society. So it's powerful. And then you then talk about the theological imagination and its power and how it can call into question and prophetically redefine the social imagination. But that theological imagination, which can be so redemptive, can also, as you write, lead to a sense of arrogance and privilege by limited human beings. So small question here. Uh, Can you walk us through what you name as the diseased social imagination of this country and how that led to a diseased theological imagination for the Christian church, or, you know, maybe it was the other way around. (laughs) So can you walk us through that? Yeah. I, so there's so many things I could say here because my co-author, Sung Chan Ra, he is a brilliant man. He's a, was a professor at North Park seminary for a long time. He just moved to Fuller seminary this year and he's now teaching there. He's been a pastor of a church. He's worked within marginalized communities for most of his career and writes very much and teaches very much from that perspective. And he's a brilliant man, and he brought a lot of this understanding of the social imagination and the the theological imagination and that stuff that he has taught on and brought into the conversation. And he was able to put into kind of theological terms what I had been talking about through my own experience. And so this is one of the things I really love about our friendship and our partnership in this book together is um, he comes in at some very key points in this book and provides kind of the theological background, some of the uh, the, the more precise um, terms and really defines them well without detracting from the, the emphasis of what we're telling through the stories and through the narratives. And so... Uh, you know, one of the things that I've experienced in my life growing up in New Mexico on a border town to the Navajo Nation, pastoring this indigenous church, and then actually getting involved with indigenous leaders from around the world who are in the process of decolonizing their faith. And that helped me to understand how most indigenous peoples, right, all around the world, not just here in America, we were colonized by the gospel. So settlers came in, colonizers came in, they were armed with this doctrine of discovery, and they came to exploit our lands and to even exploit our people. But they also came with this biblical message that said, we want to bring you to salvation. But their message of the gospel was highly colonized, and it said, for God to love you, you have to act like a Western European or an American. You have to speak our language. You have to give up your pagan ways and you have to do all these other things. And so most indigenous peoples all around the world have the experience of being colonized by the gospel. This is behind the idea of boarding schools where the goal was rather than outright physical genocide, which the country had already been doing for hundreds of years, the boarding schools were about um, more of a, a, a cultural genocide to attempt to kill the Indian, to save the man. And when I began engaging with these indigenous leaders all around the country, all around the world, I should say, I spent some time with a a Messianic Jewish leader who is not the American Messianic Jewish leader that we typically think of, but he was he was lived deep within his own uh, cultural context as a Jewish man in Jerusalem, but also had this incredible network of relationships of indigenous peoples all over the world. And when I went to spend some time with him in uh, in Jerusalem 
and we were doing kind of a shared discipleship where I spent time with him, being discipled by him in Jerusalem, and then he came to the reservation and spent time with me, and I discipled him in the work I was doing. And when I got to Jerusalem, he said to me, he said, Mark, as an American raised in the white evangelical church, you've been trained, you've been taught to read the Bible incorrectly. You've been trained to read the Old Testament as if you were Jewish. And so you read the promises and the covenants that God has with the people of Israel, and you apply them to yourself. Now, again, raised as a white evangelical, which I was in the Christian Reformed Church, and you know that was the context I was raised in, and this was kind of eye-opening for me because I had, I had always been trained that I could take these promises in the Old Testament and apply them to ourselves. And having this kind of eye-opening conversation with my friend was really changing the paradigm of how I approach the scriptures. And it helped me to see how the nation was really approaching the scriptures incorrectly. And in our book, we lay out, and I won't go into it fully in this podcast, but in our book, we lay out the, the teachings of John Winthrop who um, was one of the early colonizers. He actually was here in the 1830s to plant the Boston colony and preaches a sermon to the colonists called A Model of Christian Charity. And that really lays some of the, the, the fundamental, even if you want to say theological imagination of this country, where he literally uses the language of the Sermon on the Mount. He refers to the colonists as a city upon a hill, taking from the language of Jesus, telling his disciples to be a lamp on a stand, a city on a hill, shining their deeds into this bright world. So he's calling the, the, the colonists a city on a hill. And then he, through the language he uses and the way he quotes and misquotes scriptures, he actually implies that they are God's chosen people and they are landing on the shores of their promised land. And they can now go and take possession of them the same way Joshua did with the people of Israel when they crossed over um, the, the river into Canaan. And this is where we began. Again, I wasn't calling it a disease theological imagination, but that's the language that Soong Chan put to it. Because basically what's happening is this nation now, because it sees itself as God's chosen people, because it reads the Old Testament as if these covenants were written to them, because it believes that the church, white America, has a land covenant with the God of Abraham. This actually gives them justification for genocide. Because if you read the book of Joshua, the way the people of Israel are supposed to take possession of their promised lands is to kill everybody. Leave no man, no woman, no child, no animal left alive. And so when the church claims these promises and they claim, misappropriate that identity, and they refer to themselves as God's chosen people and these are their promised lands, they now have theological justification to commit genocide, which, if you look at the history laid out in our book, is exactly what this nation did 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And so this is where, right, when you talk about kind of the, the, the social imagination 
of a, of a people that believe they're exceptional. And then you infuse that with a diseased theological imagination, what that does is it's like injecting steroids into this already broken situation because now it's not just what you can do as humans. Now it's what the God of the universe is doing on your behalf and justifying for you to do moving forward. And this is where not only do you commit genocide, but you commit genocide believing you are actually fulfilling the will of God and you are giving thanks to God for the ability to commit these massive injustices. Wow. That's just, I feel like someone just hit me in the stomach because that is exactly what it is. It's really, it's really like the theological imagination just sort of, um, amplifies and magnifies the disease social imagination and makes it holy in this awful way. Yeah, and getting to that social imagination, because I think, you know, I think that's the next step that we see and how this all comes into play. You know, an example I have is when my son, Micah, was in third grade, he had to read um, a book by Rush Limbaugh called Rush Revere and the Brave Pilgrims. So in, in Washington State, third grade is where, um, you know, in the school system, they start to examine Native American history. And anyway, this book was the offering um, to my son's third grade class. Anyway, in this book, Limbaugh says that he wants to introduce the next generation of American school children to the idea of American exceptionalism with the hope that the next century will be another, quote, American century. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about American exceptionalism and, and tie it in with, with this um, social imagination. What is it and how does it uh, connect to the disease social and theological imagination? Yeah, so that. That story that I told about John Winthrop, when I lecture on that, and I think we even do this in the book, I refer to that story as the birth of American exceptionalism, right? This is, this is the place where we can clearly see the marriage of this disease, social imagination coming out of Europe, intertwining even more fully with this, this uh, theological imagination, and you have this understanding of American exceptionalism, which is, I would identify it as a myth. And the challenge is, is it's rooted in the lie of white supremacy. And so when you have this, when you see that understanding, you see kind of that being born there in that sermon preached by John Winthrop in 1630. And then you see that kind of, um, you know, that, that kind of percolate for about a hundred years. And then in the mid-1700s, right, the nation begins moving past the Appalachian Mountains. It begins moving further west, past the Mississippi River. Late, 18, late 1700s, we have the Second Great Awakening. There's this growth in churches, this renewal of denominations. And then in the early 19th century, the early um, 1830s and 40s, the term um, manifest destiny is born. Right, this belief that this nation has the God-given right to rule these lands. These exceptional white Christian people have the God-given right to rule these lands from sea to shining sea. And so this 
America, this myth of American exceptionalism is rooted in this diseased theological imagination. And as I was going out, and this is going back almost eight to 10 years ago, and I was lecturing on the doctrine of discovery, and I was laying out the horrificness of this history and kind of really finding ways to, to confront people um, very honestly with what our nation had done, you know, and what we're, what our nation is built on. You know, the fact that Abraham Lincoln, one of our greatest presidents, is actually a blatant white supremacist and one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. You know, whether it's things like we have, if you look from from the, the 19th century, you see that our nation awards 425 medals of honor to soldiers who participate in the Indian War campaigns. We even award 20 medals of honor for the soldiers who participated in the massacre at Wounded Knee. And so we see, as I'm confronting Americans with this, I end up after these lectures getting two responses. On one hand, I'll have a line of people of color, African-Americans, Native Americans, other people from the margins. And they were excited about my lecture. They're like, I didn't know the dates. I didn't know all those policies. I didn't know those exact quotes. But I knew our history was that bad. And they were grateful that I, I gave them some understanding of what was really there in some very solid ways. And then I would have a line of white people. And they would come up to the front of that line. And their faces were like a sheet. And they would look at me with this almost blank stare in their eye. And they would say, I had no idea our history was that bad. Tell me how to fix it. And as I was kind of talking about this with my family and with colleagues, and I was telling people, I'm seeing what appears to be some type of trauma in white people but it's not a, the trauma that comes from being a victim and I didn't have a placeholder for it. And around that time, I don't remember the exact point in this discussion where this happened, but my wife and I were talking about these things and wrestling through these things. And she was doing some writing and investigating on her own. And one point during a conversation, she said to me, she said, American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism of a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past, as well as its current racist reality. I looked at her, like, say that one more time. <laughs> and she said, again, she said, American exceptionalism is the coping mechanism for a nation that's in deep denial of its genocidal past, as well as its current racist reality. And that rang so absolutely true in what I was experiencing and what I was observing, where I was seeing white Americans when they were being confronted with this horrific history. And they were finding a trying to find a way to cling to their sense of exceptionalism, right? It's very striking that for a nation that right, if on a global scale, we're, we're, we're average when it comes to academics, when it comes to delivery of healthcare, we're subpar. When it comes to income inequality, we're at the top of the pile, right? When we have all these social measures where we are really at the bottom of so much of how we measure the health of a society, and yet we still cling to this narrative that we as a nation are exceptional. And we cling to that because that's our coping mechanism. The way we justify what our nation is standing on, the way we justify what we've done is we tell ourselves, 
we're exceptional people. We are God's chosen people. We have divine permission to commit these injustices. You know, Mark, when you say that, it just, it makes me think about the the community where I live, the home where I live here on the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation, where, um, you know, it is a, a checkerboard reservation. So there are Native people living um, side by side with white settlers who, who own most of the the deed land here on the reservation. And you see that narrative and that just sort of rampant belief in the justification of superiority right on the reservation. And it's, it's right here and right now, it's not abstract. It is absolutely real. Um, it's like, we deserve to be here because um, what we are doing is just and right and what the people, what the first people here were doing with the land was a waste. I mean, you and just if, see it played out. If you out. want to see that on steroids, look at our politics, right? How many of our politicians actually quote John Winthrop and they talk about this nation is a city upon a hill, right? In 2016, Donald Trump ran and won an election by promising white America he was going to make America great again. Now, the Democrats, not to be outdone, right? Hillary Clinton was running in 2016, and she countered Donald Trump by telling her supporters that America is great already. In fact, in one of the, the national debates during that election, she expanded and she said, not only is America great, but America is great because America is good. And Donald Trump, it was fascinating. He was on stage. He turned and looked directly at Hillary and he said, I agree with her. I agree with everything she just said. See, we thought the 2016 election was about racism versus anti-racism. So, um, you know, we thought it was about it was about trying to these two polar extremes, but it wasn't. What we were actually voting on, because they both agreed. They both agreed our past. They both agreed our foundations. They both agreed our history was great. They disagreed if we were great in 2016. Donald said no and Hillary said yes. The 2016 election wasn't about racism versus anti-racism or, or um, sexism versus anti-sexism, the debate we were having in 2016 was, do we want Donald Trump and the Republicans to make us explicitly racist and sexist and white supremacist again, or do we want Hillary Clinton and the Democrats to work to keep our racism and white supremacy implicit? And, and so this is the challenge, because again, going back to how this is a coping mechanism, if you want to win an election, in this country, in our elections, our politics are driven by white landowning men. You have to find a way to tell white landowning men, if you want them to support you, if you want them to donate to you, and if you want them to vote for you, you have to find a way to tell them that they are exceptional. And we saw that again in the 2016 election at the, at the Democratic National Convention, right? Donald Trump, make America great again. Hillary Clinton, America's great already. President Obama jumps into the fray. He says America's already pretty great. Cory Booker, an African-American senator from New Jersey who had presidential aspirations in 2016, he was talking to the DNC. 
endorsing Hillary Clinton, in his speech, he acknowledged that the Constitution excludes women. He acknowledged that um, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as savages, and he acknowledged the three-fifths compromise. Now, all of those were really courageous because most national politicians don't acknowledge any of those things written into our foundations. But he acknowledged all three. But then he saved his political aspirations by telling the majority white Democratic Party that these things do not detract from our nation's greatness. Right? He would never say that in a room full of people of color. He would never say that in a room full of women. He would never say that in a room full of Native people or African American people. But because he had a room where a lot of the money was controlled by white landowning men, he had to find a way to acknowledge this injustice and yet still tell white landowning men they were exceptional. And it was so blatant what he did. It's like, oh my gosh, this is the problem. So, Mark, I, I feel like you, um, I mean, it strikes me as I hear you talking like this, if this were me, an interpersonal thing, it, we would say like, we are uh, like the person who needs to be told they're constantly exceptional. I would view them as just a very insecure person. And in fact, you do put out this psychology of whiteness and personal property in your book that really intrigued me. You quote the theologian Willie Jennings, who talks about how with colonialism, whiteness replaces a connection to the earth as a signifier of identity. And Jennings says, with the emergence of whiteness, identity was calibrated through possession of not possession by specific land. And this shifting in identities actually leads to a kind of existential insecurity because private ownership of land can never be a real match for this deep sense of belonging to a land and living in harmony with it. And you write, our insecurity regarding our rights to the land is a result of the elevation of land ownership on an economic level without a deep understanding of the theological value of land. And I just really loved that. And the question I guess I have for you with all of this is that the right of a, to prof, private property is really the basis of the American dream. It's what we're all supposed to want. It's what we're all supposed to aspire to. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about private property and why it is so problematic. I would love to expand on this. In fact, just recently I did, I, I sit in my house and I have what I call my second cup of coffee. I do this two or three times a week and I talk about things going on either in the church or in our nation. And previously, earlier this, actually this week that we're recording this, I did a second cup of coffee and the title of that second cup of coffee was Decolonizing Our Understanding of Creator. See, like I said earlier, that most indigenous peoples around the globe have the experience of being colonized by the gospel. We also have the experience of our understanding of creator being colonized. There's a great example of that. I think it's in chapter eight of our book, where I talk about the Kikuyu people in Kenya, and they have met a white missionary. I'm telling the story of one of my friend's family, 
and the, the nation has met this this white missionary. They they're being colonized by the gospel. Some of the people converted, and they were in the process of translating the scriptures into their own language. And as they were doing the translation, the missionary said to them, he was very adamant that they could not use their word for creator in this translation. Their word for creator, I believe, was Nagai. And he said, you have to use the English word God because we don't want these scriptures to be corrupted by your pagan understanding of God. And my friend's ancestors said to them, he said, sir, we've known creator for generations. We didn't know we had a son. If you force us to use your word for God in this book, in this translation, this book will merely be about the white man's God. But if you let us use our word for Nagai, our word for creator in this book, this book will be an extension of the general revelation we've already received. See, the challenge, because Western Europe has lost its sense of being indigenous because of migration and war and everything else that they've gone put themselves through and the way they've chased material wealth and exploitation all over the world, they've lost their understanding of their own indigenous lands. They've disconnected from their land, and they've lost their creation stories. And so what they do is they co-opt the creation stories that are put into the Bible, and they claim those Middle Eastern creation stories now as their own, and they treat them not as creation stories, but as science. And so your creation story, right, and every, most indigenous peoples, almost every indigenous group of people around the world have a creation story, and many of those stories include a flood narrative. Really interesting. and so. When these white European Christians go off to evangelize the world and they force indigenous peoples to not only accept Jesus, but to accept their understanding of creator, which comes specifically from the Middle East, right? Meanwhile, the indigenous peoples, they have their own creation stories. They know, and the purpose of a creation story is to put you in the space that you're living, Creation stories tell you why your surrounding mountains are where they are, why the rivers flow where they are. This is why if you read the book, the book of Genesis and you read those creation stories, they name the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, right? Because they're putting the people for that creation story in their space to, so they can relate better to their land and relate better to their creator. And so when they force us to give up our creation stories and appropriate, misappropriate this Middle Eastern creation story. And when they don't have even their own creation stories, right? One of the things I, I talk about frequently with, with European settlers and colonizers is they came here armed, not with treaty, not with relationship, not with an understanding and respect for the people. They came here armed with a doctrine of discovery. They, and, and the first chapter of our book, the first sentence of the first chapter says, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. You can conquer those lands, you can steal those lands, you can colonize them, you cannot discover them. And so what Western Europeans are trying to do 
is they're trying to create their own story within these lands. Even though they have no treaty, they have no relationship, and their own creation stories don't take place here, but they're looking for a way to claim these lands. And so this is why, right, they steal Mount Rushmore. They steal the Black Hills from the Dakota people and carve the faces of their most genocidal presidents on them. This is why they name the tallest mountain in Alaska after not the people who created, who, who have that mountain, but they name it after a president who's never even been there. And they're trying to find a way to create space here. And one of the things I'm so adamant about with our Native peoples is we have something. We have something that white people cannot steal, they cannot take, and they cannot buy from us. And that is legitimacy in these lands. And I encourage, and I actually talk about white America as a group of people that desperately needs to be adopted. And this is something that as Native peoples that I think we can do. We can actually give our uninvited guests legitimate space in these lands by adopting them. And through that quote-unquote adoption, training them how to live here better. One of my primary goals in my work is to treat our, teach our Native peoples and challenge our Native peoples and, and, and help our Native peoples step more fully into our role as the host peoples of these lands. You know, it's interesting, Mark, as you're <clears throat> sharing, I was thinking about, you know, in, in my relationship with my son, talking about our created our creation story, you know, the Tewa story that I know and and coming out of of the ground, you know, being coming right out of the ground there on our homeland and we talked about that in relationship, you know, to crossing the land bridge and sort of the the archaeological or anthropological migration um to North America and my son said, "Well, I don't believe that, but, but maybe I kind of believe it. I think both. I think we came out of the ground and we came over the bridge. And I just thought that was so funny. He's like, yeah, I can, you know, he can hold both of those things at the same time. He's like, we did. We're from this ground. We came out of this ground right here. And I think that's the challenge is because European people, most of them, including most white Americans, no longer have their creation stories. They don't understand the purpose of creation stories. The purpose of a creation story is not science, right? The purpose of creation stories are to tell you about your relationship with your land and your relationship with your creator. And so because most Western Christians don't know their own creation stories, they treat the creation stories that are written into the Bible, which they've co-opted as their own, and they treat those like a science textbook. And whenever they have these debates about seven days and how creation happened, blah, 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 I say, really, which creation story are you reading? I'm, they're like, well, the one in the Bible. I said, well, you know, there's two, right? <laughs> there's two creation stories in the Bible, one where people are created first and one where they're created last. So which one is your science textbook? And they don't know the answer, of course, because they've never read it that closely. And so this is where we need to educate our uninvited guests to help them understand what they're missing because they've 
come from this long centuries, even millennia legacy of colonization, exploitation, stealing, and colonizing of land. So I'd like to I'd like to um, pivot just a bit here, and because it, uh, it's such a pleasure to have you, and we're so thankful that you're sharing this time with us. I I can't let you go without hearing about your presidential run in 2020. Um, you know, from I think I mentioned to you before. You know, you're a rock star in my world. You know, you ran for president, and I, I want you to talk to our listeners about um, your your platform in 2020, what was your platform and what would you do to dismantle the doctrine of discovery if you were, if you were in that presidential role? In short, I'm asking about your, your practical approach to how to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. Yeah. There, and I, there's so many places I could go with this, right? If you want to hear about my, my, when we launched our campaign, we actually had a nine minute video that's still online. If you go to Mark Charles 2020 on YouTube, you'll find our nine minute announcement video, which lays out my vision for what I wanted to do with this nation. And there's a lot of videos up there that you can kind of see what our platform was and what we were talking about. But as I was studying, right, because I was studying the doctrine of discovery for years before we launched this campaign. And as we looked at how this doctrine of discovery became embedded into the foundations of our nation, so our Declaration of Independence, 30 lines after the statement all men are created equal, refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. The Constitution never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. Slavery is still legal in the Constitution. The 13th Amendment codified slavery under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. The Supreme Court, going back all the way to, to the 1800s, right, uses the doctrine of discovery as the legal precedent for land titles. And so when I began to look at, and one of the huge pivot points for me was listening to President Obama's final State of the Union, right? Like most of our nation, I was very excited that we had elected our first black president. And I was excited to see what he would do throughout his entire presidency. I was in D.C. for half of his presidency or, or more than, yeah, about half of his presidency. And I was excited to see what he was going to do and how he was going to address things differently. And in his final State of the Union, he was acknowledging the deep partisan divide and the broken politics we have in our nation. And he was calling the country to a new politic. And in his speech, he quoted the Constitution. He said, we the people. Our Constitution begins with these three simple words. Words we've come to recognize mean all the people. Now, he got a lot of applause for that line, right? He, he, it sounded really good, but I, I studied our history. I've read our documents. I've looked at our past. I know about the doctrine of discovery. And I sat there and I said to myself, I said, when? When did we decide that we the people means all the people? The Declaration of Independence does not advocate for we the people meaning all the people. It never mentions women and it calls native savages. And so I realized at that point that if we wanted to be a nation that was truly based on the equality of everybody, 
we had to edit our foundations so they acknowledge the humanity of everybody. And so the theme of my campaign was I wanted to build a nation where for the very first time, we the people actually meant all the people. We had to address what was stated clearly in the Declaration of Independence. We had to edit what was written into our Constitution. There's so many people proposing amendments to our Constitution. The problem with an amendment is it's a footnote at the end. So you have to read through this very racist and sexist and white supremacist document. And then at the end, it says, oh, when we said he, we should have meant everybody. When we said, you know, white men, we should. (laughs) And, And that's the problem. And so I said, rather than amending this document, this is our document. This isn't some holy grail document given to us by God. Let's just edit it. And so I I actually, on my website, there is a draft I have of the Constitution where I went through the Constitution with a strike-through font. And I took out every racist, sexist, and white supremacist section or word of the Constitution, and I replaced the language with inclusive language instead. I wasn't changing balance of powers. I wasn't changing checks and balances. I was merely removing the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacy from our foundations. For example, the clause in the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment says, um, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereas the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. The 13th Amendment doesn't abolish slavery. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. In my version of the Constitution on my website, I took out the clause. So it merely says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place under their jurisdiction. Now, the funny thing is, is most Americans think that what it says. They actually think the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. They don't know it keeps it legal in prison. And so I'm not changing a radical change, I'm merely helping our documents to reflect what we say our national values are. And so I truly, like, I had a 100-day plan. My 100-day plan was to um, edit the Constitution in the first 100 days to remove all of the racist, sexist, and white supremacist language so that we actually have a foundation that would allow us to write and enforce just and, and, and laws based on both equality and equity. And so this was so much of what I was trying to do. And the, the challenge is, is right, the nation truly believes that they think that the United States of America struggles with racism and sexism and white supremacy in spite of our foundations, right? They think our foundations are good and we just do a bad job of implementing them. The reality is the United States of America struggles with racism, sexism, and white supremacy because of our foundations. But no one, especially from the two-party system, is interested in changing our foundations, in addressing these things at a foundational level. And so from your point of view, addressing that at a foundational level is really what dismantling is. So saying these these systems weren't created to serve everyone and and that needs to be changed. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's allowing for the first time our foundations to be radically inclusive where they were never meant to be radically inclusive. They were meant to, the constitution was written to protect the interests of white landowning men. It was not written to include natives. It was not written to include natives. It was not written to include women. It was not written to include or to count African-Americans as fully human. That's not why it was written. It was written to protect the interests of white landowning men. And so if we want to be a nation where we the people means all the people, we have to change that. Hmm. Well, Mark, I, I'm so thankful for your time with us today. And, and I also wanted to just say, you know, I look forward to growing a relationship and working together because on our coalition, we're also in the business of dismantling. And I just really look forward to seeing how we grow together in relationship in that work that um, that we are embarking on over our over our lifetime here. Thank you. Yeah. And I just want I'll mention very one last point about my campaign. The theme of my campaign, the, the, one of the primary planks of my campaign was I was advocating that the United States of America needed a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. It's a conversation I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. But because reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, that's actually not the right word to use. I don't advocate for racial reconciliation because that isn't accurate. I advocate for racial conciliation. Conciliation is just the mediation of a dispute. And so I believe deeply our nation needs a national truth and conciliation commission. And I think we need it sooner rather than later. That's why I ran for president in 2020. And that's why I continue doing the work I'm doing today. Maybe you'll run for president again. <laughs> I, I have a lot of people asking me that, and I tell them I will make a decision after the midterms. At the moment, I'm actually doing a lot of work right now to promote the book that we wrote. And so I'm doing a lot of work and interviews and trying to promote the book. And I just started a site on Patreon, which allows people to kind of um, support uh, the work of, of content creators online. And I started a Patreon. Um, under the name Wireless Hogan. And I tell people I'm trying to create because they ask you on Patreon, they make you state what you're creating. Most people say I'm creating a podcast. I'm creating, you know, something like that. And I said, I'm working to create a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. Well, Mark, uh, I will make sure that we link to all of that in our show notes. And um, yeah, uh, thank you so much again for um, everything you're doing. Um, it's really inspiring and exciting to hear about what you're what you're up to. And I'm just so grateful that you were willing to spend some time with us uh, this morning. Thank you, Sherry. And thank you, Sarah. It's an honor to be with both of you. I'm thrilled about the work you're doing. And thank you for allowing me to be on your show with you today. So I want to encourage our listeners to please pick up a copy of Mark's book together with co-author Soong Chan Ra, um, Unsettling Truths, the Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, it's had an impact on us, um, and I strongly encourage you to read it. Thanks for choosing to be with us, Mark, and we look forward to future conversations. Ashahat. <laughs> 
Thank you and Hakona. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DDFD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you. 